uh, Acts chapter 14. And so when we get here, uh, we are, remember last week in the first few verses that Paul and Barnabas had got to Iconium after being uh, ran out of Antioch and Pisidia. Uh, and they, sh- they show up there and they have success at first and a great many people are believing uh, and they continued in faithfulness as uh, Luke pointed out last week that they, the reason why they got ran out of Antioch of Pisidia was for preaching the gospel. And you would think maybe they would try to change their tactics a little bit to save face or protect themselves, but they continue in faithfulness and preaching the gospel the same way they were preaching it in Antioch of Pisidia. And at first there was a great many people who believed, and then some of the leaders there in the synagogue began to ultimately try to poison their minds is the word that Luke uh, the author of Luke here, of Acts here, uh, said that the, the leaders try to poison their mind to keep them from believing. We see that uh, happen multiple times in the book of Acts so far where God would do a work and then someone tries to come in and as we saw it uh, with the bar Jesus to try to make crooked the straight paths of the Lord. And that's what we see even here in Acts 14 uh, with those leaders. And because of that, uh, the, uh, the apostles decided not to leave they actually said last week that they remained for a long time. And so instead of leaving, they stayed for a long time. And where we left off last week, there was boldness. There was boldness in them, them staying. And then the last thing that we see in that text is that ultimately time came for them to leave. And so uh, let's read beginning of verse 5, and I will make it through uh, verse 18. So let's uh, Look to God's word. It says, And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with the rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities in Lyconia, and the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. So they haven't learned their lesson yet. They're still going and preaching the gospel. So verse 8, Now in Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth, and he had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on on your feet, and he sprang up and began walking. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, uh, sorry, uh, and the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons and satisfying your hearts with good gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we come to you now and ask Holy Spirit to be our teacher. God, the things that we don't know, teach us. God, the things that we uh, are, 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 that we're, we're not, make us become that. Uh, and God, may us just give us eyes to see and ears, ears to hear this morning. It's in Christ's name 
Everybody said, amen. So something interesting happens. Obviously, there's a lot of interesting there. So, so far, we haven't seen the, them people try to make sacrifices to the apostles or anything like that yet. But here's something unique that we have not seen in the book of Acts yet. Up to this point, every recorded sermon is specific in a synagogue. Uh, so there's a lot of Jewish, th- so there, the sermons that we've read so far are sermons to Jews or proselytes of Judaism, as in those who were not born Jewish, but, but at some point came into faith in uh, the Jewish God, Yahweh. So every sermon we've seen so far is, like I said, it has a lot of Jewish history about Abraham and our, their fathers and how uh, through, the, through the lineage of David. And now for the first time, we see Paul preach a sermon to a purely pagan congregation. And so what we'll see is how their message doesn't change, but their tactic does a little bit. That he, he knew who he was talking to, that he knew that if he came in talk, talking about the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, he lost them already. Because these guys couldn't really even, you know, come on the same pages. That they, would, that they, they would have been talking like talking to a wall, right? And so anyway, so one thing that we'll see is how Paul changes and how Paul preaches a different, in a different manner into the congregation or to the group of people in which. And so, but the first thing I got to do, go back to Iconium. So we'll get back to, we'll go to list here in a second, but let's go back to Iconium for a minute. Remember Luke's points last week, they were faithful in Iconium. They were bold in Iconium. And number three, you'll see that my first point is actually number three because this is third point of Luke's sermon. And so uh, anyway, uh, and so they, there was wisdom in Iconium. So at first, and here's something that's really cool. You see them at first remain bold, right? They, they remain bold and they stayed put. And then they got word that they were going to be mistreated or stoned. And what did they do? They, they left. There was wisdom in which leaving the time was for them to leave. And which is the interesting thing that you and I have to deal with often, right? Is that there are times that we are called to stay and there's some times we're called to go. There are times that we remain and there's sometimes we don't. We see through the book of Acts that sometimes they knew they were going to get stoned and what do they do? They stayed put. But here they got word that they were going to be stoned and they left. Ultimately, the enemies were scheming, but God was protecting them by giving them word that it was coming, but it was time to leave. In the Christian life, there's a time to stay and there's a time to leave. There's a time to remain where God has planted you, and there are times that in which God has called you to go elsewhere. And we don't have a blueprint necessarily to know which one's which. But what we understand is they were being led by God in some points, some points to stay where they are, and in other times they were led by God to, to leave. As the famous country prophet said, you got to know when to hold them and you got to know when to fold them, know when to... anyway. What we see with these believers that the apostles here is that at one point they knew they needed to stay, another point they knew they needed to leave. How did they know that? My, I believe that they were seeking the will of God and the Holy Spirit led them, that it was time to go from. But ultimately, they weren't done there. What we'll see when we get to the end of this chapter is that they finally get all the way to Derby, and then they turn around and they make their way all the way back to the original Antioch they come from. So they'll stop through these places again, but at this time it was... The work had to be left into God's hands, that they left it there. And what we see, uh, that, that there, was, uh, there were believers there. There was growth that happened there. There was divine affirmation, but they left, and wisely they left. And what we see ultimately as we jump down into Lister is that God used opposition to open up new mission field. 
because they're going to a place that we don't meet him yet in chapter 14, and Luke made mention of this, but in chapter 16, uh, sorry, chapter, yeah, uh, in the second missionary journey, they'll meet a fellow named Timothy who's already a believer. And so there's a great chance that in this first missionary journey, even though the only story we have from their time in Lystra is them healing a lame man and the crowds wanting to uh, offer sacrifices to him, that we have to believe that uh, Timothy and his family came to know Jesus in this first, but because like I said, when they come back on the second journey, they're already there. But ultimately what we see is that Timothy and his family were waiting, that the Christian, and I hope you've seen this in the book of Acts, that the Christian life is anything but boring that, man, they didn't know what was going to happen each day. And they were, their pursuit was to preach Jesus. And the furthest thing Christianity for them was, was for them was a boring thing. And so I'd like to ask the question is, is your Christianity boring to you? Are you bored with your Christianity? Because if you are, maybe by chance, we're not living it the way in which we're called to live. Uh, because every, I feel like every chapter, there, there, there's something, some uncharted waters. Obviously, I know this is frontier missions, but the, man, they lived a roller coaster. Why? Because they were, they were pursuing to get Jesus known throughout the world, in their neighborhoods, to the nations, and it was anything but boring. The adventure is in spreading the gospel. So we see that they, they leave because they got word, and they went from Lister to Derby into all the surrounding countries. So as they were going, wherever they went, they were preaching the gospel. Their, me- their message didn't change. So they go to Lystra and to Derby. Uh, Lystra's about 20 miles southeast of Iconium to where Derby's about 60 miles. What's really interesting, and I think that's why they were going this way, is that all of these, uh, Lystra was a Roman military con- uh, uh, colony, and it was connected all the way to Antioch of Pisidia. So remember, where did they first get kicked out of from? Antioch of Pisidia, and now we see them in these. There's one road that goes all the way through. It's actually about 100 miles from Pisidia to Lystra. So when we get to the end of this chapter in a minute, and we see that Jewish leaders from uh, uh, Pisidia had come, and to, had come to stone them, we see how they were able to get there. But anyway, like I said earlier, this was the home of Timothy and his Jewish mother, and according, I, I don't, I mean, we don't know a whole lot, but evidently there was not a Jewish synagogue within Lystra. Uh, why do I think that? Because maybe Luke didn't record it, but what has Paul done every time he's went into a new place? The first place he went to is what? The synagogue. So what we see is the people that he's now talking to, we have to catch his context. They weren't religious people or Jewish religious people. These were pagans. These were people who had never maybe even heard about Yahweh. These were people who were steeped in darkness. Uh, and, in this, and we see even the gods in which they called out, the, this darkness that they were in, they were mo- probably most of them were illiterate. And so this is a new context in which Paul and Barnabas are now coming into. So if you're taking notes, the title of this sermon, I called it Preaching to Pagans in Lystra. I guess it's important for us to connect that because these are people, like I said, who didn't have a Jewish background. Uh, these were the people who you and I would be uh, if we were alive in biblical times. You ever, you ever wondered about, you ever thought about that? Right? Like, so when we think about Gentiles, people who had, you know, were cut off from the promises, they were not of the seed of Abraham, they were strangers to the, the promises of God that they wouldn't even have knowledge of Yahweh in a sense. 
But when we read the Bible, oftentimes now in, in, in the United States of America, we see ourselves as like the Jews, like we've always heard. No, we would have been these pagans who would have had no hope and no idea of who this Yahweh God is. But anyway, the first thing that we see, and obviously not everything is recorded what happens in Lystra, but what we see is that Peter's preaching and a lame man is healed which is phenomenal. This is the third lame man in the book of Acts that we've seen healed so far. And all of them are pretty familiar. The first two uh, comes in Acts 3 and Acts 9, where Peter, uh, uh, one in Acts 3, where they're walking to the temple, and the other, and Ananias, whenever, or Aeneas, whenever uh, he heals Aeneas and tells him to take up uh, his bed and fold it up and, and take off. And so what we see is, first of all, a lame man is healed. We see it in verses, uh, uh, beginning in verse 8 uh, to verse 10. And it says that, while they were at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet, and he crippled. He was crippled from birth, and he had never walked. Time out for a moment. All Luke needed to say was there was a crippled man. But in two or in one verse, he states three different ways this man's desperate condition. First of all, notice that he said uh, there was a man who could not use his feet. As in present tense here, he couldn't use his feet at that moment. Everybody with me? But then he said, crippled from birth. So that's back then. So from the moment he breathed his first breath, he couldn't walk then either. And then it says, uh, and he had never walked. So here's how I got it written down on the points. Uh, go to, keep going. Man's condition is serious. So he could not use his feet, which is now. From his mother's womb was thin, so he never walked, means from then to now, this has always been his condition. Everybody with me? Like, this is a, a serious condition, as in he's never stayed, taken a step uh, in his life. Just like we've seen in uh, Acts 3 and Acts 9, muscles wouldn't have been formed. Uh, there was no stability or strength. He didn't even know how to walk because he's never walked. Rhett is trying to walk right now. And it's so funny to see, right? And so he, he, you know, he wobbles, but he's got a big belly, so he can like stop for a moment and like, get it balanced. And then he'll anyway. Uh, this man is. It, it would be like this, right? And so imagine this. And so this man is who we were first introduced to. So there was a man that was sitting. He could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth, and he had never walked a day in his life. But check out verse nine. He listened to Paul speaking. And I think we need to catch that is that at this point, this lame man, who evidently was a pagan man, was now given ear to hear what Paul was preaching. There's hope in that verse, by the way. That this man in his hopeless condition that God had now given him an ear to hear that which Paul was preaching. That he listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him. He even has the same language kind of of Peter when he's walking into the temple when he heals the man in Acts 3 as, as he's walking. And Peter stared intently at him and said, get up and walk. And this picture is that Paul, this is the story that Paul's ultimately preaching. And at some point he notices this lame man that's listening to him. And as Paul's preaching, he makes eye contact with this guy. And so God, the Holy Spirit, gives Paul somehow some of the ability to lock eyes with this guy and realize, hey, God's doing a work in this guy's life. That's the context. That's kind of the story of what's going on right here. So he looked intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright, upright on your feet, and he sprang up and began walking. 
Man, phenomenal story. This is what, so what you can look at like chapter 14 whenever it says they were speaking boldly and the, fa- the, the father was given witness. This is, what, this is what that means, is that they were preaching the gospel and the father gave testimony, testified to the message by healing the man. So here's the first thing. They come in, there's a lame man, has never walked in his life. From then to now, he's never walked. His condition was helpless and hopeless. Paul's preaching the gospel. They lock eyes and Paul says, or the Holy Spirit tells Paul, hey, he's got faith to be healed. And he tells him to rise and walk and God has healed him. There are two miracles that happen at this point. First of all, I've already pointed out is that the lame man was able to hear, not like physical hear, but he was actually able to hear God's invitation. He was actually able to understand the gospel. He was able to understand what Paul was teaching. The second thing is obviously that a man who never walked just stood up in a moment, in an instant, he was given the ability, the strength by the power of God to walk something he's never done in his life. So Justin, what does that mean for me? Maybe you're in here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself, actually, let's time out. You're in here this morning and you love Jesus. You love his word. That ear that you have for the word of God is a gift to you by God. We don't naturally desire that on our own. It's not a strength or an attribute that you and I just are born with. We are born dead in sin and, 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 and strangers hating God, if you will. So if we have an ear, if you love the word of God, listen to me, that love is not of your own uh, your own gifting. That is a love that the Holy Spirit has given you. Thank God for teaching us how to love his word and love his message and love his great gospel. Amen? And so that's, the first, that's a miracle in a sense is that, man, if you love the word of God, thank God for allowing us to love the word of God. But maybe you're in here this morning and you keep coming back even though you haven't placed your faith in Jesus. But little by little, this gospel, like your ears opening up to it a little bit more and more. What is that? That is God opening your ear to hear the very message that will save your soul. Will you trust in it? Will you believe in it? And not put off another day. Listen, if you can hear the Holy Spirit drawing and calling, that is God giving you an ear to believe. Will you do it this morning? But just like this lame man who physically couldn't walk, our condition spiritually is crippled just like him. It is from then to now, we've always been spiritually paralyzed, if you will, crippled. As in we have been stuck in the same place since we were born, and that is dead in sin, not able to stand up, not able to get up, not able to get enough strength to climb out of that. You can't use your feet now, spiritually. You have been able to since you've been born. And if you try to get up, you can't. But here's the, the, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of salvation, is that when God looks at the crippled man spiritually and says, get up, instantly he can get up and walk. So the miracle we see that maybe we've gotten so familiar with just because we've been in Acts so far, it's the third time we've seen it, we're looking, and this is what Luke talked about last week, the biggest miracle that we're looking at, but the picture of man, this man has never walked in his life, has 
is a greater testimony saying this man who, who hated God, had no desire to know God or love God, who couldn't walk in the ways of God, that God in the midst of called out and he said, get up and walk. And he made him new and he gave him a heart that would chase after him, a mind that could understand him, that, that would love him, that he could follow him, actually physically follow him. That's a miracle. So the first thing that we see is that in Lystra, the Holy Spirit through Paul heals a man who's never walked in his life. That's going to make a crowd. That's when things get interesting here. In Acts 3, we see that the apostles ended up in jail after the fact. Now we're going to see them on the other end of the spectrum that they're going to be treated like gods. And so let's read it again, if you didn't catch in verse 11. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconia, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker, and the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice for the crowds. You look at it and go, where did that come from? Like, how could they go from just watching this people heal a guy to, man, these, this is Zeus and Hermes. They've come down. It just seems random, but actually, if over, if with a little bit of study, it wasn't. See, there was, a, there was an ancient legend in their region that once Zeus and Hermes decided uh, to take on human form, and they went to the hill country of Phrygia, which is all in Asia Minor there. And what Zeus and Hermes was doing in disguise is they were seeking hospitality among the people there. But they were denied over a thousand times. They visited over a thousand people, and nobody gave them hospitality, except for one old poor couple named Philemon and Baucis. Later, their hospitality was rewarded by their house being spared when a flood came while everyone else's houses were destroyed by the flood. What are they doing here? They're going, we're not missing it this time. If it's true that Zeus and Hermes came and we missed them, we're not missing it this time. We're automatically going to make these dudes, guys. We're going to worship them. We're going to bow down. We're going to offer sacrifice. And what's crazy is that the apostles didn't realize it at first. Why? Because they were speaking in Lyconian. Could you imagine Peter or Paul and Barnabas after they heal this guy? God does an incredible thing, and then all of a sudden everybody starts speaking in languages you don't know what they're saying. And you're probably like, "Yeah, yeah, God's at work. God's at work." And, and they're, they're really getting into this. They're amen, and then everything's going on, and all of a sudden uh, uh, the, the 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 priest brings out an ox, and he's like, "Well, <laughs> what's going on here?" And then all of a sudden they start they bring out garlands and start throwing them around their neck in signs of a god. And Paul and Barnabas go, "Oh, whoa!" Like, could you imagine that setting? Imagine that scenario. Everything was all good until, like I said, it became clear when the bulls and the garland came out. So what we see here, and I, I don't want to make too much of this point. I don't want to make too light of it. First of all is that this shows, and what we see with these people, the, this desire in, in the human nature to make man God. And, and we naturally do that because... It's easier for us in our minds to trust someone who looks like us, who, who we can see, who's visible. And naturally, what the human heart does, first of all, tries to make myself my God, but we try to have God in our own image, if you will. 
And there's a desire within all of us because it's written into our hearts. Eternity is. And so we're naturally bent to, uh, even if we don't confess it, naturally bent, if you will, to a God. And what we try to do is we try to make man a God. And quickly, and obviously there's a bunch of things here, but the, the, the fear that they had that we're not going to, well, I don't want to be destroyed in a flood, so therefore I'm going to acknowledge these guys to this bondage of, of these false religions, if you will. But what we see is quickly, they were a, quickly able to, or decided, hey, these men are God. I said, Justin, that seems like so far-fetched. We would never do that. Really? We wouldn't look at a man or a woman and go, oh, Zeus or Hermes. We wouldn't make, try to make a man a God. We do it all the time. But the second thing that we see, and I think this is another side, is that it shows a desire, and this I really do believe this, even if we acknowledge it or not, that it shows that there's a desire in man for God to meet him where he is. Like we all ultimately desire, even maybe even the atheists would say, if there is a God, I sure wish he would make himself known to me. If there is a God, I sure wish he would meet me where I'm at. And that's ultimately what we're seeing is they're, they're, they're hoping and believing that the gods have what? Taken on flesh. Does this, in a minute, Paul's going to call these vain things, ultimately saying, dude, you're heading in the right direction, but you missed it. That God has ultimately made himself known. He has taken on flesh, if you will. But what we see is there's a desire for man to for God to meet him where he is. And so the men, the, 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 the crowd reacts in this, let's, let's worship the apostles ultimately. Let's venerate these apostles. Let's make them as God. So how will the apostles respond? Remember, they, they had in the back of their mind what happened to Herod whenever he was worshiped as a God and he received it. What happened to he do? He dropped dead. And so that's probably a little bit of what's going on too, but... Uh, what happens? Look at verse 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? So they come into Lystra. God does a miraculous work, heals a man. Next thing they know, they're, the people are trying to sacrifice animals and worship to them, which for the human flesh is like, Yes, let's make this happen. But the apostles, who know that the glory belongs to the Lord, says, why are you doing these things? And here's where kind of the, the meat of the sermon is, is that Paul at this point is now about to open his mouth and preach to pagans for the first time, purely pagans. Can you say purely pagans? Uh, only pagans for the first time. And the way he does it is, is beautiful, and I kind of wrote it like this, is that there, was a, there has to be a flexibility in evangelism. And we see it. We see Paul, and we've seen Peter so far, and even Stephen. That all their sermons were very rigid and structured in Old Testament history and things like that. But when we get to this point, these people have none of that knowledge. So how is Paul going to speak to them? How is Paul going to... To, to, to correct them, if you want. It's a beautiful thing. And actually, 
for me and you, it's probably the way we could use evangelism a whole lot more than just taking somebody through the structured detail things of beginning, beginning to reach them with things they can actually see. Which takes a lot of work. But that's what Paul begins to do. And unfortunately, it gets cut short. So we only get like two, two, three verses of what he's preaching. But if you go to, if you want to, I think if you want to know what that sermon probably sounded a lot like, you can go to Acts 17. Uh, whenever Paul preaches there to pagan, he actually expounds upon the gospel. Uh, but this is what he does. This is beautiful. In Acts 14, beginning, like I said, and let's go to 15. He says, why are you doing these things? And I love this. We are also men of like nature with you. What a great way to start. What a great way for a Jew to look at a pagan and go, hey, I've got a nature just like you. I'm, I'm, I'm prone to sin just like you. I'm nowhere, I do not desire to be worshiped at all. Why? Because I'm man, I'm human just like you. What a great way to start, by the way. In evangelism, and a great way sharing the gospel is first of all going, we're both sinners in need of grace. I figured I wouldn't get many amens on that one, but. It says, we're men like you again, verse 15. Here's the thing, but we bring you good news. Here's good news that you have. This is why, this is why the good news is good news. You don't have to have prerequisite information and knowledge in order to be saved. There's nothing you need to know. You don't have to understand all the tenses of justification, all the prophets of the Old Testament. You don't have to be able to name the books of the Bible and all. Listen to me. The gospel tells us, scripture tells us that we can go to pagans who have no former knowledge of God and say, I'm bringing you good news. And here's the good news. Turn from vain things to the living God. Here's the good news that I have for you today. You've hated God. You've worshiped false God. But I'm here today to tell you, if you'll turn from those vain things, the living God will accept you. That's good news for all people. And notice what he does ultimately tells them to repent. And here's the beautiful thing about repentance that I think many of us have forgotten in our religiosity, that repentance is just, I'm going to stop doing the other things. Now, repentance is turning from something, but it's also turning to something. He says, listen, repent, turn away, let go of these vain things, these vain things that don't satisfy, these vain things that you wish and hope that you do the right thing, that God won't destroy you in a flood, that these vain things that bring no satisfaction or hope or security, turn from those things and turn to the one true living God. That's what salvation is. It's not just stop doing what I used to do. The only way I can do that is if in turn I turn to the one true living God. Because if I don't turn this way, then I'm going to be stuck over here. But through the one true God and turning to him and embracing him, placing faith in him, he allows us to actually repent of the things we're trying to leave. It's not that I repent of those things and then God goes, all right, he's good enough. I'm going to take him. No, it's I see how fall, how worthless, I mean, how worthless I am and how terrible those things are, how they separate me from God. So I'm turning to God. God, I trust in you, but help me turn from those things as well. It's this power that enables that one, not that one that enables this one. 
See, somebody may be having in your mind that, man, I've got to stop. I've got to get my life in order. As a matter of fact, I heard that this past week that I've got to get my life in order and then I can live. Out. No, you're not going to get it in order. I've come to bring you good news. Turn from those vain things and believe in the Lord Jesus and the one true God. That's the gospel that we see that Paul presents. And so how is he going to present this living God to these pagans who don't know him? He gives him, really, there's three characteristics of this living God that we see in his three verses. First of all, we see in verse 15, he says, Come to bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things, these things that are not satisfying, these things that are only a shadow of the real, the, these things that, that promise hope and then result bring destruction. Turn from these vain things to the living God. And here it is. First of all, we see that he says this living God is the creator of all things. He said, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. How is Paul starting his evangelism in these pages? To me? This living God is the one that made everything you see. Whenever we go down to El Salvador, I haven't been in a while, and we would go into these schools, uh, one of the things that, that Brother Bob Kendrick would uh, teach us to do is to, like use things that people can see. And so uh, if, if you've ever been to El Salvador, if not, it, I mean, it's just mountains all over the place, like your coffee and all that up there. Uh, but from the schools, almost every school, if you're looking out the classroom, you literally can see mountains. And so one of the ways that we would preach, would go, the God who created that mountain, Loves you, and he sent his son to die for you. And that's the picture of what Paul is doing here. He said, listen to me, the God, the, 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 this God that I'm talking about, this, this eternal one, the, he's the one who made everything that you see. He's the creator of all things. That there's one God who created all things. There's not Zeus and Hermes and Achilles and all these guys that do different things and there's one God who created all things and sustains all things. And in the beginning, this God created the heavens and the earth. Obviously, Paul didn't say that, but what he's saying is that this God, the living God, he made all things. So the first thing we see about this living God is the creator of all things. What does that mean? If he, who has the authority to name things and order things than the one who created them? If there is a God that created all things and he, he alone can make the demands and set the parameters in which those things operate and exist. And to those he created who fallen, if he is the one who created all things, he and he alone is the one that makes the way or the way or the direction in order for us to get back to him. Everybody with me? That's why it's important that we see here is that He's the creator of all things. Why? Because he's the one who dictates and decrees and, de and demands everything for it to be. Everything has its value, not because of the value in itself, but the one who created it says it's got value. You have value, I have value, not because of something good about us, but God who created us looked at us and said it's good, and you have value because who your creator is. He alone has the authority. So he starts it to me. Everything you see was created by a sovereign one, holy one who is not one among many, but the only one. So he's the creator of all things, but he's also forbearing or long-suffering and merciful. Look at verse 16. 
In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk their own ways. I think we, we lose sight of this for a moment. Like if we go all the way back to the garden, do you remember what God told Adam and Eve? You can eat anything you want, right, except for this, because when you do, what will happen? You will surely die. Let's don't spiritualize that for a moment. Literally, what he's saying is, when you eat that, you're going to die. As in, you will stop breathing, your heart will stop beating, you will die, and the job will be just in that happening. We forget about that often. That even in our rebellion, even now, that, that God owes us life. No, he does not owe us life. But we see it in the garden before he kicks them out that he, he covers their nakedness and he makes a promise that there'll be one who comes that's going to maybe, the, 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 the serpent will bruise his heel, but he will crush his head. And then he kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden and shuts the gate. And since we've been east of Eden, at any moment, God would have been just and striking us all down. But in his long suffering and in his mercy, he let people go their own ways. Is what we're seeing. And so he's looking at him and saying, this one true God who's holy and above, who created all things, who sustains all things in the past, listen to me, in his forbearance and in his mercy and his long suffering, he's allowed you to go your own ways. And may we not take for granted the long suffering of God. Many of us are banking on the long suffering. Let's be honest for a moment. Let's be honest, if you, if you look at God who's, God who's jealous, a consuming fire, is the same God who's a long-suffering God and a patient God. Let's be honest, we're all going to jump on this. <laughs> we're all coming over here. And the reality is a lot of us, we live our Christian life as if this is the God that he is, but he's not that God. We're banking on the long-suffering. But thankfully, he is both of those. I can't present him as two different gods because he is both of those. That's what Paul is saying here. Listen to me. In the past, all people have went their own ways. This God who created all things, who sustains all things, who sets the parameters and the demands and the decrees, has set out a precedence, and he has let people go his own way. Say, Justin, does that mean that it's because he's loving and he's merciful? Since the first fall, we've seen obviously a holy God, but a merciful God because Adam and Eve didn't die. They died eventually, but in the moment, they didn't. So he presents the living God as a creator of all things, long-suffering and merciful, but one who is providentially graceful. Think of verse 17. Yet, he did not leave himself without witness. So all these years, he's been patient. He's been long-suffering. Obviously, we have to know that God knew when Christ would come, and he knew before the foundations of the earth the plan of redemption. But the reality is that for so long, he allowed people to do their thing without striking them down, if you will. Yet, all along, he did not leave himself without witness. That all along, yes to the Jew, 
there was a special revealed character of who God is through the law and so forth. How does the pagan who didn't grow up a Jew, how did God witness of himself to this person? Paul answers it. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying in your hearts with food and gladness. Sounds just like Romans chapter 1, doesn't it? That this God who created all things, who sustains all things, who sets the parameters, who's been patient, he has been witnessing of his love and his kindness to you from all generations by, and this is what it hit so you know, so close to home with these pagans because they had so many different gods that were the God of fertility and the God of rain and the God of harvest and that and the other. And what Paul is saying is to me, this God is the one who sent the rain to water your dry lands, if you will, that brought the fruitful harvest that made your heart glad. That you thought it was all these other gods. It was, it was the same God. It was the living God, the God that I've come to preach about to you today. It's not found in, in hoping or, or waiting. It's not found, but it's not this and that. The other is that it's this one true God. And you would think at this moment, you would think at this moment he had their ear. Like put yourself in that place. You're somebody, you're a pagan, if you will, in this time who worshiped all these false gods and they told you you had to do 17 million different things and you had to pray the certain way, you had to have this sexual act of perversion in the temple, you had to kill all these goats, you had to do this, that, and the other. You had no security, no hope, no, no peace, if you will, but you were always searching, kind of clawing at everything. All of a sudden, this man of God shows up and says, I bring you good news. Of the tr- if you would turn from those things and believe in the one true living God, you can find hope. I, I, we would go, yeah, yeah, I'm in. You mean this is possible for me to have assurance and to have hope? That should get our ear. Look at verse 18. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. What? As in what that means is, as Paul was preaching this, they were still wanting to venerate them. They were still wanting to make them guys. They weren't listening. They weren't hearing. If they did, they were so steeped in their tradition or whatever it was that they just kept going after that. So Paul couldn't even finish his sermon and say, Justin, that is so, so sad. Yes, it is. But it's just as sad as people who fill up a church on Sunday morning, Sunday after Sunday, who hear this gospel of life, this gospel of message, who week by week is hearing the same good news over and over again. Who God gives them an ear, and they stand up, but stand up physically and walk out the door and not trust in Jesus. I don't know which one's more sad. Because they didn't get the full message. What we see here is that God sends these people, somebody, to share the gospel. And for some reason or another, they were still stuck in worshiping these guys versus listening to the very message that they came to preach and to submit to. Practical things that we can learn is that you and I have no liberty to change the gospel or even need to. As John Ryan comes up, but what we see in this example from Paul here is that we can't learn to meet people where they are. They may not always believe, hear, 
like I said, this isn't the full story of what happened to Lister. This is just one of those where he zooms down and gives us a story of what happened. Derby, we don't get much of, but what we do know, when we get back to the second missionary journey, and, we, and Paul and his compadres get back to Lystra and Derby, there's some solid believers there. Timothy and his family. He's a strong man, so strong that, that Paul goes and tries to find him because he wants Timothy to go with him. Like, his, like Timothy's testimony had gotten out, and Paul had heard about it. Before he even got back, he heard about it. He wanted to go find him. So even though we don't see that there were conversions at this point, evidently there were conversions going on in their time in Lystra. And so one thing that we see is that, like I said, that we have no liberty to change the gospel or even the need to, but we can learn to meet people where they are. That there are people in our setting, in our congregation, in our workplace, and other places around that don't know Jesus come from a bunch of different backgrounds. And sometimes in evangelism, it may take a little work, but we get to know people and find out how to meet them where they are. And this is not a watering down. This is not, this is how can I share the gospel with this person? That's not hitting them in the face with my pocket New Testament. But how can I lovingly, creatively, if you will, share this good news? Who's that person in your life that God's called you to share with? We've seen it over and over again. There are many people who believe. Actually, there's fewer people who believe than actually do believe. But who's in your life that God's calling you to share this good news with? And how can you creatively figure out how to land on level playing field? If you may just start with, hey, I'm a man just like you. As Paul did. Like, I struggle just like you. I have fears just like you. I have anxieties just like you. I have failures just like you. I mean, that's a place in which it gives us an ear to share the gospel with someone. Maybe it is an intellect who knows everything. What I've learned oftentimes is that sometimes it happens, but not all the time does intellect trump intellect. Sometimes the Holy Spirit's more powerful than either one of those. All the time. How can we share the gospel with people? Because if your Christian life is boring, give this a chance. If you're bored with following Jesus, give this a chance. Maybe you're in here this morning and God's opened your ear today to hear this gospel. The good news is the gospel doesn't just end with how God made witness or gave testimony to himself through rain and crops. That ultimately he gave testimony to himself and his love for mankind through the person and the work of his son, Jesus. And that Jesus became man and bore the sin. We sang about it. He, he died upon a cross bearing our sin, was laid in the tomb, 
Three days later, Scripture said he rose again. And God the Father has testified to the Son. He's vindicated the Son, saying, He and He alone is the way you make it to me. This God who created all things uh, the sun, the moon, the stars, the seas that Paul talks about, who has the, listen to me, here's the thing. He has the authority to declare and to decree those things that are right, those things that are holy, those things that are good, and the way in which man can get back to him. How, how does he have that authority? Because he created everything. Everybody with me? He's the one that created it all, so he gets to say all and be all at the end of, of it all. It only makes sense, but you get what I'm saying. And he says, by the resurrection of his son and ascending him on high and sitting him down on the right hand, that it is through him and him alone and his finished work and faith in him can man get to me. And maybe this morning God has given you ear to believe that, just like he did with this lame man. Will you trust in him this morning? Maybe he's whispering, the Holy Spirit is whispering, get up, get up. You've been crippled in sin since you've been born, but get up. I'm making you, I'm, I'm going to teach you how to walk. Will you get up this morning and place your faith in Christ? I pray that you will. I pray that you will. In a moment, we're going to be able to take the Lord's Supper together, which is a beautiful thing as we're talking about this creator God who ultimately witnessed of his nature and his character by the sending of his son. This morning, we get to remember as the church and celebrate that ultimate witness of the father where he sent his son to die on a cross and to, to shed his blood for his body to be broken. So at Cross Point, you don't have to be a member of Cross Point to take of the Lord's Supper. Um, but we do ask that you be born again, that you are a follower of Jesus. We're not going to, I'm not going to look up here and see who's coming up and taking it or not. We don't do that. Uh, we're just going to ask you, uh, if you would like to take up the Lord's Supper with us, you're free to. Uh, and then, so how we do it is that the deacons come down. Deacons, you can go ahead and come down. Um, there'll be one kind of in each aisle. I'm just going to give you all a heads up. We got these COVID cups. And we're going to try to make them last to the summer. And at some point in the summer, we're going to try to go back to the old way of doing Lord's Supper. But if you feel weird about that, we maybe have a cup to the side for you. But anyway, uh, so the way we do it is in a minute, I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask you to stand. And uh, as Daniel and the team kind of leads over, so you can move forward and grab uh, the cup as you desire. Yeah, you can go ahead and stand. That's fine. I'm not the best in the, with instructions. Uh, I don't even know what I'm doing half the time, much less telling you what to do. Uh, but here's my plea to you. If you need to know Jesus this morning, if he's calling out to you, stand up and walk spiritually, as in believing in Christ, I pray that you do that this morning. I pray that you will trust in Jesus this very day. Maybe you need to stand where you are for a moment and kind of, Pray through confession of before you take it to the Lord's Supper. Whatever you need to do, I'll give you time to do that. But then when you feel ready, you can come down front, like I said, and get the cup. We ask you to go back to your seat. And after I think everybody's got it, I'll come back up and we'll take it together. Everybody with me? Cool. Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your love for us. God, we thank you for your word. God, we um, pray now, God, that we will 
respond to your word in a way that as you're leading us. God, thank you for you've given us the the ear, ears to hear your word. God, I pray for the one today that needs to trust in you to, to walk, if you will. God, that they will believe in your son. God, be with us during this time, this time of worship where we are obedient to Christ. We remember and we proclaim his death and resurrection. So in Christ's name we pray. Amen.